What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Hedging Screens Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Zach Cronin, and I hope that everybody's doing well. I hope that everybody up in the Northeast, up in the North Midwest, or whatever you want to call it, is staying warm because it is cold as a polar bear bussy up here. Just by far the coldest couple of days we've had all year long. And we're going to start off today's show with a little bit of pop culture news. Not something I really delve too far into on this show, but you know, I'm I'm looking to expand a little bit, take on a few more topics that are a bit out of my comfort zone and see if I crash and burn as spectacularly as I think I will. So last night I was hanging out watching Bucks Hornets and I saw the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air trending on Twitter. Now, I'm sure you guys know the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, the sitcom from the early 90s starring Will Smith amongst a host of other characters, uh, Alfonso Ribeiro, obviously the late great James Avery, is trending. And I'm like, why the fuck is it trending, right? They already had the uh, the Fresh Prince reunion. That was a couple years ago. And I noticed, well, I noticed because it was the first thing that came up. There is a, I don't know how you want to call it, a reboot, uh, a remake um, this article here, courtesy of Engadget, classifies it as a reimagination of the original Fresh Prince of Bel Air. Now, this series um, is being produced by the Peacock Studio. I think that's the NBC affiliate. And NBC, of course, were the creators of the, or I don't know if they were the creators or if they were the distributors of the original Fresh Prince of Bel Air. I know that Quincy Jones had a huge hand in it, so I, I don't necessarily know where. That goes, but The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air aired on NBC more than 20 years ago, and the reception to this show, um, I'm just going to read a quick excerpt from the article, Bel-Air Peacock's modern-day modern reinterpretation of The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air will debut on Friday the thir- on February 13th, the streamer announced on Monday and shared a first look trailer. Announced back in 2020, Bel-Air re-envisions the classic 90s sitcom as an hour-long drama series. All the main characters from the original return, including Uncle Phil and Carlton. Of course, these are all going to, going to be played by different actors, uh, which was very apparent from the get-go and kind of jarring, to be honest. That's most apparent with Carlton, who comes off bashful as ever. Thankfully, at least Will's best friend Jazz looks true to his inspiration. The project was originally inspired by a fan film writer and director Morgan Cooper released in 2019. Both Cooper's creation and the Peacock series lean into the original premise of the Fresh Prince, using Will's journey from Will's Philadelphia to Bel Air to tell a story about second chances, race, and class. Will Smith's Westbrook Studios produced the series, with Cooper serving as director, co-writer, and executive producer. He told Smith in 2019 the idea for Bel Air came to him while driving down Interstate 71. He was thinking about the original show when he drove under and when he drove an un, when he drove an underpass and inspiration. I guess when he drove under and under. But I knew I had a story to tell. So this is coming. Super Bowl Sunday, and the series is expected to run for two seasons, at least that's what it says here, and at first, I was, I don't want to say at first, because I'm still kind of, I don't really know how to say it, I'm kind of, I'm equally as optimistic and pessimistic when it comes to anything, any intellectual property, any original piece of IP that, um, a studio has or a television network has. I'm very skeptical when it comes to reboots of these series because a lot of the times 
It's just a cash grab. And it's they're used to capitalize on the nostalgia that these series uh, invoke. And I think it's really disgusting when companies do that just for the sake of making a few extra dollars. However, upon learning that Will Smith is going to be working um, very closely on this project, I kind of was able to take a take that with um, take solace in that because for a lot of people, the Fresh Prince of Bel Air, and this is myself included, was their first introduction to a sitcom, really, and one that was equally as goofy as it was um, touching, I feel like. Of all the sitcoms I've watched, Seinfeld, The Office, um, of course, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, maybe this is just me being biased because, again, The Fresh Prince was the first sitcom that I ever watched, and it really helped um, illustrate some very intense issues to me when I was a young kid. Like I I was watching this when I was 10, 11, 12 years old. I started watching it one day. I really don't know. I really don't know how it came to it, but so many of the dramatic moments in that show, the one, and I'm getting goosebumps just talking about this one, but of course the famous scene when Will Smith, when Will um, sees his father leave for the second time after he came back, after he came to Bel Air to talk about wanting to be with his son. Of course, I'm talking about the, how come he don't want me man scene, uh, a, a scene that, to this day, like I've, I'm rewatching the series now, just as an older person, just picking up on all the little jokes that I never got. Um, all the, all the nods to pop culture, you know, uh, jokes about uh, <laughs> the Reagans, um, Michael Jackson, Janet Jackson. But to this day, for all the of all the television that I've consumed, that scene is still so 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 moving and so powerful. And then, of course, there are other scenes like this, like um, the episode when Carlton accidentally takes the <laughs> the amphetamines that were in Will's locker when they were at the Bel Air dance and how Carlton wanted to go to the hospital and how Will, as a teenager, had to take responsibility and own up to that. And then um, I just had another moment. Oh, who could forget about also the time when Will gets shot when him and Carlton are at the bank. And the very heated exchange between the two of them in the hospital when Will is like, Carlton, you need to give me that gun. You're not going to do anything with that. And it was a very intense exchange. And those types of moments, those types of moments and the interplay with all the goofy moments, all the fat jokes that Will Smith cracks. Um, I was just watching this episode last night, but it was um, when Will lied to Lisa and Lisa also lied to Will about going to a party and you know they have their little encounter and then Will goes into the bedroom to get his closet and he finds his cousin Ashley in the room with the uh, linebacker from high school and of course Phil and Vivian are giving Ashley this talking to and they're like anytime they would mention the football player they mentioned him as a fullback and and Will just chimes in from the back uh, he was a linebacker Uncle Phil like all of those goofy moments just riddled throughout the series um i think is what helped really make it stick out because all sitcoms are goofy it's a comedy that's what they're supposed to be but the depth of the characters is really dependent on the writers and all the people working behind the scenes on the show and i think that's where the fresh prince excelled is that it was equally as dramatic as it was comedic and of course the fact that it only ran for six seasons it didn't it didn't 
stay beyond its welcome. Like that's what happened with me when I watched The Office. Like Michael Scott, spoiler alert, leaves in season seven. And then, you know, season eight is kind of like, okay, you see how the office, how the, the people inside the office function without Michael Scott. And then by the time season nine rolls around, you're like, okay, there's just nowhere for this to go. Uh, same thing with Seinfeld. I felt that Seinfeld towards the end of its run kind of just got a little boring because you have all these eccentric moments and you keep having to build on them season to season. And even though the whole premise of Seinfeld is it's a show, it's a show about nothing, right? It's a guy, it's a comedian living in New York City who just has all of these mundane experiences that are made super wonky by the friend group that he keeps. And after, you know, the ninth season, I watched the ending and I was kind of unfulfilled. Like, you know, it was just, it was kind of a bummer. But when The Fresh Prince ended and, you know, family sells the house in Bel Air, they move all the stuff out. It was an actual close it was an actual it was actually closed very properly i feel like now this the reimagination of the fresh prince is taking a modernized approach to the show and what does that mean it's going to deal a lot with the racial issues that are present throughout the original series because it's an all-black family there are you know parts of the writing that allude to different parts of black culture being a wealthy black family, this, that, and the third. And I think in that avenue, it can excel. Especially, um, one thing I like that they touch on is, at least from the trailer, and you can go watch the trailer, it's on Twitter, it's on the Peacock Twitter page, is there appears to be a little bit more backstory as to what happened that sent Will out to Bel Air. Something that wasn't really, at least as far as I remember, wasn't really hovered. In the original series, you kind of just know that, you know, Will got into a little bit of an altercation on the basketball court one day, and his mom felt that it was best for him to go live out in Bel Air with his uncle and his family so they could, so he could keep himself out of trouble. But there was never a deep dive into it. And I, I kind of get that because as much as The Fresh Prince of Bel Air was a show about Will, it was a show about the Banks family as well, where like as much as it was about Will. And with this new series, you do kind of have the freedom to play with Will's backstory a little bit more. And if the writers and the producers and everybody involved, if they try to differentiate themselves from the original show, I think that's the best case scenario for them. Because you're not like rebooting it, right? This is again a reimagination. You're taking your interpretation of the show i'm sure it's a whole different set of writers a whole different set of producers showrunners people that are involved of course with the exception of will smith and i think if they try to do their own thing and play to the dramatic side a little bit more i think that it'll be relatively successful because ultimately what's going to happen regardless is that people are going to compare this show to the original that's how it goes. Whenever there is a second of something, it's always compared to the first, whether it's art, whether it's, you know, a piece of music, um, an album, follow, like, you know, I'll take Kendrick Lamar, for example. Every time Kendrick Lamar releases an album, he's so transcendent that he is only compared to himself and his previous work, regardless of the other people who are releasing albums around him and then of course it's like we're looking at someone like uh michael jordan and his children marcus jordan or lebron james and Bronny james for example like there will always be that comparison 
And as long as the new Fresh Prince takes its own liberties and gives its own fulfilling, captivating, engaging story, I think it will be relatively successful. I just hope that everyone involved with the show understands just how massive of an undertaking this is. Like, this isn't something to take lightly. I mean, look at how long it took for HBO Max to do the Fresh Prince reunion. Like, the show ended in, like, 98 or something, 97, 98, somewhere around there. And the reunion didn't come until, I think, like, 2018 or something. So you're looking at, what, 30 years or so? No, 20 years. 20 years, pardon me. I'm horrible at math. Uh, I'm, again, equally as optimistic as I am kind of afraid of what's going to happen going forward. But now we have to get back into where I am more comfortable in terms of speaking. We're going to get back into sports news. And this one story I felt was absolutely, it was an absolute must read. So I saw multiple times over the last couple of days that Aaron Rodgers was threatening to boycott the Super Bowl because of their vaccine requirement. And I'm like, dude, listen, Aaron Rodgers is a psycho, right? He's a psycho on the football field. He's a psycho off the football field. I mean, this dude... This dude listed Joe Rogan as a foremost medical authority on the COVID-19 pandemic. Like, as soon as that comes out of his mouth, I'm like, this guy is not all there. And then he goes and plays football, and you're kind of like, okay, this guy is equally as demonic on the football field as he is off the football field. And it turns out that this story was fake. Um, I'm going to play the original clip for you guys. This is courtesy of the uh, Funhouse Twitter account at Back After This and in ode to uh, Mike Francesa. So let's just go you ahead and read it. I could read the whole thing if you want yeah, me to. Yeah, go ahead. You can read it. All right, I'll read the whole thing. Boom, the Rogers saga continues to get crazier and crazier. I've been told by multiple people in Aaron's direct circle that if the Packers make the Super Bowl, he will use the week leading up to the Super Bowl to prove a major point. He will threaten the NFL by saying he won't play in the big game or next season if they don't eliminate some of the COVID-related rules. One big one that upsets him the most is the testing of non-symptomatic players. He's told Jordan Love to be ready. Like you said, he's got to make it first. But Super Bowl week will be set on fire and send Goodell in a frenzy navigating the situation. Now, can I say what, what area of the country this is from? I mean, who are we protecting really here at this point? Uh, I mean, okay. So it's yeah, a, of course you want it out, right? I mean, now, as it turns out, you're probably listening to this and you're like, "That's absolutely insane for Aaron Rodgers to say that to go to Jordan Love and be like, "Hey, if we make it to the Super Bowl, be ready to play in the Super Bowl." No, look, Aaron Rodgers may be a dumbass. Well, I don't want to say maybe Aaron Rodgers is a dumbass when it comes to his COVID takes, but this is like, this is preposterous. From everything I've seen, Aaron Rodgers takes football very seriously. Every, all signs point to him being serious about football. And for someone as great of a quarterback as he is, a guy who is undeniably, arguably the most talented quarterback the NFL has ever seen, just in regards to the type of plays that he can make. He may not have the accolades to back it up. He's going to he's gonna win his second straight MVP. But like you're comparing him to someone like Tom Brady, who's got however many Super Bowls, seven, potentially eight after this year. 
I don't think he would risk that. And as it turns out, this clip was this was clipped out of context, obviously, because this is how the the internet works. Anytime you see a clip that's less than 90 seconds long, you can almost guarantee that the clip chimper or the chimp clipper, whatever it is, however they talk about it on Twitch, is they have an agenda, right? The the uh, the article follows up. However, it appears as though this clip was taken out of context from the show as the preceding proportions apparently made it clear this entire segment was tongue-in-cheek. So it's them posting, it's, it's them shitposting about Aaron Rodgers' COVID takes, which I have no problem with. Like, if you're in the media and, you're, and you just want to fuck around on your radio show and you want to get a few laughs, I don't see anything wrong with that. But I think it's just more, it's just more of an indictment on us for thinking that this was actually even true. Like, I kind of, I, I read it and I was like, I kind of believed it because I had a friend text me about it and he's like, you see the shit going on with Aaron Rodgers? And I'm like, yeah, how long do you think it is until ESPN posts a graphic comparing him and Tom Brady this season making their MVP case and, you know, list their completion percentage, win-loss, touchdowns, interceptions, and then at the bottom it says vaccinations, two for Tom Brady and then zero for Aaron Rodgers. And it all stemmed from this conversation. So I think... um. Uh, so the Twitter account who tweeted, who originally tweeted the video, did issue a follow up saying, "I'll take the bullet on this one. My work schedule is nuts is nuts these days, so I'm only able to listen to part of the show." At the time I posted that, honest to God, I had no idea that you had 100% determined that it was a prank. Didn't know that part when I posted. Apologies. Now, from everything I know about the back after this Twitter account, you know, they just poke fun at the goings-on in sports media, sports commentary, radio commentary, because as we know, sports talk radio is, it is a fucking, if GTA servers had sports media commentary, that is what sports talk radio would be. It is just a cesspool of poor information, dog shit takes, psychotic people calling up with the, with like the absolute most, smooth brain shit you could think of and that's what makes sports radio so entertaining right so as far as i know the uh, back after this twitter account hasn't like really fucked up massively in the past i mean this isn't even that big of a fuck up he posted a clip it was funny either way it's hilarious and you know he's just like eh, listen guys i'm sorry i fucked up i didn't listen to the whole show and then aaron Rodgers did actually respond to this i gotta see if i find i gotta see uh and then where is it where okay i got it uh yada 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 so aaron Rodgers actually tweeted (laughs) quote he's told jordan love to be ready and then he had uh the absolute Oh my God, he had, dude, these hashtags, goes hashtag direct circle, hashtag dumbest fucking story ever, hashtag fake news, and then it goes boycott fake news, boycott bums, boycott shoes. Aaron, please, boycott your cleats if you make it to the Super Bowl. That would be fucking amazing. Boycott AJ smoking cigars. (laughs) Boycott LaFleur's brows. I'm glad to see Aaron Rodgers taking this in stride because... We all know, listen, we all know that everybody, everyone took the piss at Aaron Rodgers or anyone with a brain 
was taking the piss at Aaron Rodgers being so just like brain meltingly stupid with his whole immunization shit, all the Joe Rogan stuff. I mean, he went on Pat McAfee to explain his side of the story and all Pat McAfee could do was suppress the laughter that he wanted to burst out with when Aaron Rodgers was telling him about how he contacted Joe Rogan about COVID. So that was, that was, that was awesome. That was awesome. And I think it was, it was even more awesome because this is, I think this is the first time in a few years that the Packers are seen as like legitimate Super Bowl contenders. They are very clearly the best team in the NFC. They have Aaron Rodgers playing at an MVP level. They've got two running backs who are absolute bruisers. Incredible change of pace at that position between Aaron Jones and A.J. Dillon. They also have Devontae Adams, who is still arguably the best receiver in football right up there with Cooper Cup. And then the defense is a little bit shaky, but there I think I saw reports about Jair Alexander coming back in time for the playoffs. Basically, everything points to this this NFC title bid being the Packers to lose. Because really, no one compares with them at this point. I mean, the Buccaneers are, of course, going to be in the conversation because you have Tom Brady. Um, although you don't have Chris Godwin. You don't have Antonio Brown because Antonio Brown is a, a nutcase. And um, it's also possible that you don't have Leonard for, Leonard Fournette fully healthy for the playoffs. So that's going to be a little shaky for them. Um, people, of course, are going to talk about the Dallas, the Dallas Cowboys as well. And as much as I despise the Dallas Cowboys, it's impossible to look at them and not think that they could potentially do something. I mean, Dak Prescott is incredible. He's got three terrific receivers on the outside. Um, of course, they have Ezekiel Elliott and Tony Pollard, very similar to what the Packers have going on in the two running back um, committee. The defense, from everything I've seen, their defense is, you know, decent enough. I mean, you have Micah Parsons. Micah Parsons, you have Trayvon Diggs, who are two incredibly talented, extraordinary defenders, um, despite their youth. I think that might be the one thing that could come back to bite them. And then, of course, the elephant in the room is that the road to the Super Bowl in the NFC runs through Green Bay, Wisconsin, no matter what. And you have one of these teams from the South, Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Of course, um, Tom Brady did play in Foxborough for however long, so I don't think the cold is going to affect him. But like Dak Prescott has never had an extended run in cold weather before. I mean, he's a Mississippi boy, went to Mississippi. At least I think he's a Mississippi boy. I know he went to um, Mississippi, Mississippi State or whatever the fuck it was. And then he goes to Dallas where they play inside and it's 100 degrees all year round. Um, I had another point I was going to make. Oh, it was like, I, again, I'm not the most knowledgeable football guy, but I do follow it mainly because of the fantasy football implications, but I can maintain a conversation. And I feel for the longest time, the Packers have given me serious Lob City Clippers vibes. All this talent, and they are nowhere near as successful as they should be. Aaron Rodgers does have a Super Bowl under his belt. I'm actually going to go to his uh, his pro football reference page. Aaron Rodgers does have a Super Bowl under his belt. But compared to 
how great he is and how great his supporting cast is. He has not lived up to that. Uh, he won a Super Bowl last in 2010, and then every year since, he's only gone beyond the second round once. And this is with him playing spectacular football. And they've just they've just fumbled the bag. Of course, again, not that knowledgeable, but this does appear to be the best Packers team that the Packers have had in a while. In a few years, at least. So that's why it was even more timely that this report came out. But, you know, Clippers fans, they know. Houston Rockets fans also know when you have James Harden and Russell Westbrook and James Harden and Chris Paul, and you just can't, like, you, the, the Rockets were one game away from downing the Golden State Warriors and going to the finals and probably beating the Cleveland Cavaliers in that NBA finals as well. I think it was 2017, if I remember correctly. And they just squandered it. And that's kind of that's kind of the vibe I've gotten from the Packers. But this could be the year that they switch it up. Uh, again, uh, I'm not really the guy to talk football with, but I'm going to look over the playoff field, I'm going to see what's going on. And I might just say that the Packers are going to the Super Bowl just so I can say that Packers are going to the Super Bowl. I also feel a little indebted to the Green Bay Packers because Devontae Adams was so tremendous in helping me bring home my fantasy football championship. So I want to see him earn the same honor just in real life. And with that, we're going to move on to a little bit of happy Kyrie news. I feel that I've been very, very, very hypercritical of Kyrie. And of course, I'm not going to backpedal on anything I've said about Kyrie in the past in regards to COVID stuff, in regards to him um, being a little misguided on this issue. Um, but even when I have been critical of him and critical of the Nets organization as a whole, I have always remained of the belief that Kyrie Irving is a spectacularly talented player. And I... There's no other reason for me not to remain of that belief because he is still spectacularly talented. He's an extraordinary talent. And even though he's only been back for two games, and he said after playing Portland on Monday that he still needs to get his wind back. Like, this dude had 22 points, and he shot like 45% from the field. Granted, the Nets lost because they're really down cataclysmically right now. But, like, it, there really is nothing more I can say about Kyrie until I saw this article. And it was about Chauncey Billups, former Finals MVP Chauncey Billups, says that Brooklyn Nets guard Kyrie Irving is the quote-unquote most skilled point guard in history. Mr. Big Shot goes on to say, quote, Kyrie is just, he's a wizard. He's must-see TV, I personally think, as someone that played the position. I think Kyrie's the most skilled player that's ever played that position. Just straight skill, nothing else. I think he's the best I've ever seen at that position skill-wise, so obviously he gives you a ton when he's playing. This has been... Uh, this really has been a very, I don't even want to say it's like a heated conversation, but over the last couple of years, like this has been one of the more, I guess, um, more cordial conversations that people have had on the internet. And this is talking about Kyrie in regards to his talent compared to everyone else that's come before him at that position. And I feel that it's that way because there really is nobody in NBA history that compares to Kyrie. The only guy who is even near his level, I feel like, is Steph Curry, who's in just an entirely different level. But when it comes down to it, and you've had some amazing point guards throughout the years, Magic Johnson, Isaiah Thomas, um, of course, um, 
Darren Williams. Uh, we're not going to forget about Darren Williams. Those couple of years he had with the Jazz where he was neck and neck with another guy who's deserving to be mentioned here, Chris Paul. Um, you know, even Russell Westbrook going all the way back to the um, older guys. Uh, if you want to consider Oscar Robertson a point guard, he's, of course, got to be mentioned in that conversation. Allen Iverson. There are so many. Uh, Kevin Johnson, who played for Phoenix during the 90s. Like, there are so many talented point guards. Throughout NBA history, you could say it's the most, it's the deepest position that the NBA has ever seen in terms of collective talent. And when you talk about just pure talent as a basketball player, Kyrie is in the same conversation as Kobe Bryant, as Michael Jordan, as Kevin Durant, as LeBron James. Like to me, those five guys are. The most skilled players that the NBA has ever seen in terms of shot making, the depths of their respective bags, um, playmaking, like straight up bucket getting. I mean, there's a reason when you talk about like playing one on one, right? If guys in uh, throughout NBA history are playing one on one, who's going to win? I seriously think that Kyrie will be very close to coming out on top, right? Pound for pound, um, physical limitations aside, this dude, the way he so easily gets into the teeth of the defense, the way he's so easily able to penetrate and blow by some rabid defenders, his ball handling is nothing short of magical. It's, I don't even think there is a superlative that describes it. It's stratospheric almost that the way he has such command of the basketball and even like the minutia of being a basketball player, like his footwork, how, how balanced he is all the time, whether he's shooting, whether he's driving. I think his ability to finish around the basket is really what elevates him into that conversation. Because if you're a small dude, which Kyrie is, Kyrie is like barely 6'3", he might be 195 pounds. He's not the strongest guy, definitely not the most athletic guy. But he's routinely shooting like 70, 73% inside the restricted area. Like going into the trees, literally into the trees. You're thinking guys like Joel Embiid, Giannis, Rudy Gobert, some like premier interior defenders. And Kyrie just, he makes them look silly. Absolutely silly. This guy was putting up massive numbers in the 2016 finals alongside LeBron James. Kyrie is equally as responsible for winning that Cleveland Cavaliers title as LeBron was in 2016. And this was against a Golden State Warriors team that statistically was the best the NBA had ever seen. Got guys like Klay Thompson guarding you, Draymond Green, Andre Iguodala, an absolutely loaded defensive unit. And Kyrie is pretty much averaging like 33 with his eyes closed. This is a 50-40-90 guy who, whose percentages are still that spectacular when you take into account the difficulty of the shots that he has to take that is tremendous like not to discount like the previous 50 40 90 seasons but i mean all the let me preface this before i get into hot water everyone who's a 50 40 90 club member uh kevin durant steve nash larry bird and Kyrie, i believe those are the four steph's got to be in there too i'm i'm fine steph's definitely in there and even if he's not i'm gonna say that he is all of those guys are remarkably skilled, right? Larry Bird, Steve Nash, great shot makers. Kevin Durant, the greatest scorer the NBA has ever seen. And then, of course, 
Steph Curry, who's the most revolutionary basketball player that has ever touched a basketball. And then you have Kyrie, who's almost all of them rolled into one. He shoots from the perimeter just as well as any of those guys. He is the best ball handler of that group. Steph is very close, but if you're playing Kyrie one-on-one, you lost automatically. Like If you see Kyrie bringing the ball up and there's no one on the weak side, it's a wrap for you. You better like you better be calling for help if Kyrie sizing you up one on one because he's just gonna embarrass you straight up. He is he's that gifted. And then again, his little when he gets into the paint, it's almost like he morphs into an entirely different player. Someone who is more when Kyrie gets into the paint, everything I've seen from him is that he just he turns into or he morphs from a street baller, like someone who's playing pickup at the park into a remarkably crafty NBA player. And those are two very different styles. Because, yes, NBA players can go from the court and play pickup and dominate. And there are a lot of great street ballers who have had their own successes in their own avenues. But there's a reason why they can't transition as well into the NBA. And it's because it's an entirely different game. You have to be able to read angles. You have to be able to anticipate how the defense is going to react to you because everyone is so athletic, so strong, so big. You have to have a counter ready. Like if you're Kyrie and you get past your man and you jump stop, you know, eight feet away from the basket and you can't get that floater up immediately, you have to have the awareness to pump fake, step through, finish with the right hand or however it is. That's a unique skill set that not a lot of point guards have been able to master throughout the course of NBA history. And we see it with all the different play styles. Like there's a reason why there aren't any other point guards who play the same style as uh, Kyrie, Steph, and Dame. And it's because it's incredibly difficult. And you already see the, I don't want to say it's like the dividing line, but someone like John Morant, for example, is just a, he's an athletic freak. He's super brazen when he goes to the paint. He is he reminds me very much of Allen Iverson in that regard. A slender, a small, slender guard who is just going to, you know, he's going to take his lumps. And I, of course, do worry about that because unlike someone like Russell Westbrook, he's not the biggest guy in the world. We don't know how all of that contact is going to affect his body, but I don't really think he cares. And I, I love him for it. That's what makes him such an entertaining player is that he just goes balls to the wall every time, completely unhinged very much like Allen Iverson did and then also uh, we're, we have to we can't talk about premier point guards in today's league without mentioning Trey Young. Trey Young is the product of the Steph Curry play style but almost on steroids like he does his work on the perimeter sometimes I feel is more grand than anything Steph has ever done and that's not to say that Trey isn't as multifaceted as Steph Curry is because he, he's definitely getting there, but let's remember that Steph Curry didn't turn into Steph Curry until about eight years ago. So there is still a lot of growth. And how did that happen? Steph Curry learned to be craftier, like to rely on his skill set and not like, it's almost like when you're an undersized point guard, you can't look at your lack of athleticism as a handicap. And I'm not saying that these guys are, unconfident in themselves because like to getting to the NBA 
or you know being an elite college player and getting to the NBA a lot of it is just you have to you have to think that you're better than everyone else that is ultimately what comes down to it if you have the skill set if you have the talent to go to the NBA which a lot of guys of course at college do the mental shift is what comes next like you have to realize that okay I might not be the best right away but I can go out and I can compete with these guys and then you have to turn that into really like, okay, you know, I'm small, I'm undersized, but, you know, there have been plenty of guys who have succeeded with my play style. I mean, look at fucking John Stockton, right? Look at Jason Kidd. Look at, um, what the fuck is his name? Steve Nash. Guys who were not athletically gifted, who weren't jumping out of the gym like someone like Allen Iverson was or someone like Kevin Johnson was. It's just a different approach that they have to the game. And regardless of what happens with Kyrie, I will still, I I even said from the beginning, I'm excited to watch Kyrie come back and play basketball because he's just so fucking good that the NBA is an inferior product when he doesn't play. Like sitting down and watching a Kyrie Irving-less basketball team, it's just, it's not the same because you turn on NBA games to watch these freaks of nature, the pinnacle of human performance like you go out to watch them perform and that's why it's so gutting when Kyrie picks up a stance like this that prevents him from playing in the Nets home games or you know Steph gets hurt like he rolls an ankle and he's out for a couple of weeks like that's that's what makes it even more crushing and I don't really think um uh I don't really think oh and then Phillips just goes on to pretty much say what I said, his shot making is incredible. He's a better passer than people give him credit for. He's obviously a willing teammate. I'm going to push back on this point just a little bit because, listen, if Kyrie does not have to pass the ball, he's not going to. And he knows that he can play this way because he's going to make 50% of his shots, 55% of his shots. But, of course, he is still a very capable passer, which, again, comes down to him being crafty and being able to have the game slow down which is very difficult when you're someone who moves as um when you're someone who is as agile as he is and as quick as he is as well. So he brings all those things to you to you and now without him what a luxury you still have Kevin Durant and James Harden that have been the MVP in this game and have carried the team a long long way yada yada yada. Um Kyrie then uh, um what the fuck is the word? Kyrie then uh showed his appreciation for Chauncey Billups' comments because Chauncey Billups is a very, very talented player in his own right. Obviously, not someone who is the same level as Kyrie Irving, but, you know, someone who is very critical to the the Detroit Pistons pulling off the most unlikely championship that the NBA has ever seen, right? I will go with, yeah, I'm going to actually stand by that claim. The most unlikely champion in the history of the NBA has been the 2004 Detroit Pistons right up there with the 2016 Cleveland Cavaliers. I might actually have to put that Cavs team first just because of, again, going down three games to one against the Warriors team that was 73-9. and nine. Of course, you know, the Pistons were, I think going into the series, they were definitely undermanned, but like when you, that, that team was so unique. That team was nothing, nothing like we'll ever see before. Just a defensive powerhouse that managed to contain not only Kobe Bryant, but also Shaquille O'Neal, both of whom were in their primes. So I think that Chauncey Billups knows a thing or two about, you know, 
Great play. Now, we are going to talk about Miles Turner again because I love I love the trade rumors. They're awesome. And this is what's the title of this? Miles Turner trade rumors, Lakers, Knicks, Mavericks among teams interested in the Pacers big man. So, I'm not going to bore you with all of the nitty-gritty revolving around Miles Turner. Miles Turner, as we know, is on the trade block. They want to, the Pacers, again, they want to blow themselves the fuck up, right? They're like 10 games under 500. Um, despite that, they almost managed to beat the Brooklyn Nets last week, which is uh, quite embarrassing. But at any rate, the Pacers are not having a good year. And we have a month until the trade deadline. It's actually a little bit more than a month. I think it's, uh, February 15th is the trade deadline. And teams are calling. Teams are calling about Miles Turner, about Karis LeVert. I think I saw a report that said, that the Cleveland Cavaliers were interested in him. That's uh, in Karis LeVert. Also someone like Jeremy Grant, not related at all. But we're going to break out the trade machine. Because, listen, if you're an NBA fan, if you have the NBA Twitter brain cancer like I do, there's nothing more that you love than the fucking trade machine. The ESPN trade machine. Actually, I think um, there's a new NBA trade machine that folks have been using. Uh, I can't. I can't even fucking remember it. Oh God, it's gonna really fucking. It's not the real GM trade machine. Um, what is it? Fuck, is it this one? Fanspo? I don't even. I don't even know. I think that one's different. But we're actually, yeah. Leave leave this fucking page. We are going to keep with the ESPN trade machine just for the nostalgia factor. So we're going to select the Indiana Pacers and then we're just going to go piece by piece and see see what trade we can send through. And we are going to begin who are we going to begin with? Um Let's begin with the Lakers. Let's begin with the Lakers because listen Fuck it. Who cares? So, Miles Turner. I accidentally opened his player page because I'm a dumb bitch. Miles Turner, $18 million per year on a two-year contract. He's averaging like 14 points and uh, like seven boards, I think, and is close to leading the league in blocks per game. If he's not leading the league in blocks per game, he's definitely within the top five. Um, I'm definitely going to struggle through this because I'm not exactly the brightest when it comes to facilitating trades along with the cap, but the Lakers are obviously interested in Miles Turner because what's Miles Turner? Arguably the best interior defender in the NBA. And what do the Lakers suck at doing? Aside, like, you can't just say everything, even though that's kind of true. They are a laughable defensive team. Now, the issue is, how do you make this work? How do you make the Lakers and Pacers trade work? Because I have this funny feeling that if the Lakers do decide to make a trade like this, Russell Westbrook is going to be involved somehow because they fucked up and traded for him in the first place. And now they're kind of just hanging him out to dry because you have three max players in uh, Russ, LeBron and AD who are making like 100 million a year, like 110 million a year combine them. And then everyone else is on veteran minimums aside from Kendrick Nunn. And Taylor Horton Tucker, who is untradeable at this point. And he's untradeable 
because of um, some contract stipulation. Because he has a... Uh... Oh, I'm sorry. He will be eligible to be traded on January 14th. Uh, when a free agent signs a contract or when a player... They cannot be traded until December 15th or three months, whichever is later. Okay, so Taylor Horton Tucker is off the board at this point. Now, we're just going to go ahead and say that the Lakers are going to trade Russell Westbrook. Now, we have to make about $25 more million of cap space match. Now, how does this happen? I think, first and foremost, the Lakers are going to try to trade for... I think they would try to finesse Karis LeVert because if you're losing Russell Westbrook, you're going to need another playmaker because at that point, who's your primarily ball ha- your primary ball handler going to be or your primary point guard going to be? Taylor Horton Tucker and who else? You have Malik Monk, uh, Avery Bradley. Not a good look. So we'll throw Karis LeVert in there just because. Um, and we're going to try it. Let's see what happens. This trade is successful. Now, this is, of course, a straight-up deal. I don't foresee this happening because I don't think like it doesn't it doesn't make any sense for the Pacers to bring in Russell Westbrook because what's Russell Westbrook? Russell Westbrook is older. He's older than both Miles Turner and Karis LeVert by quite a sizable margin. And they're trying to steer away from the age. They want to get as young as possible. And unfortunately, knowing that, I don't think that the Pacers are going to try to trade Miles Turner to the Lakers because... I simply just don't, there's, the Lakers, straight up, the Lakers have nothing that the Pacers want. So we're going to scrap this trade entirely. Um, I would also, if they were to make something happen, maybe the Lakers don't trade for Turner and Levert. Maybe they trade for like Turner and TJ Warren or somebody, but we're just going to scrap this entirely and we're going to head over to the New York Knicks. Now I'm going to do my best not to anger anybody. Because that's the last thing I want is for Knicks fans to be angry at me. And I'm actually just fucking kidding. I don't care. I don't care. I'm going to try and be as nice as possible. But ultimately, I really just don't give a fuck. Now, there was talk about the Knicks in this article. It says the Knicks have several young players they could include in a package for Turner. With Kevin Knox potentially being the top target as his role in the rotation has consistently decreased since Obi Toppin has become... Uh, noticeably better. Now, you might be thinking, if the Knicks were unable to salvage Kevin Knox, and they had a decent amount of time to do so, why would the Pacers want to take that on? I mean, if everything works out, Kevin Knox does have the potential to be a very, very, very talented perimeter scorer, but he's shown negative flashes of that throughout his short NBA career. Um, Maybe New York just doesn't work, and I'm not, again, I'm not saying give up on him. Maybe, you know, he does need the change of scenery. So I will throw him a bone. I will throw Kevin Knox a bone and send him to Indiana because he's also still relatively young, so he does fit into the Pacers' timeline. But if the Knicks are trying to trade for Miles Turner, they're going to want some sort of offense because the Knicks' offense is so fucking revolting. It's it's very difficult to watch. It's it's just, it's a chore, man. It's a chore. The Knicks, Tom Thibodeau is a notoriously poor offensive coach. He just doesn't get it done on that end of the floor. And that's okay. That's totally okay. But you have weapons, dog. You have Julius Randle. You have Evan Fournier. 
you have Kemba, Kemba Walker. I always want to say Kemba for some reason. I, I guess it's just the whiteness coming out of me. And he still hasn't been able to make it work. So we're just going to look at TJ Warren. TJ Warren, who hasn't played yet, I don't think. Uh, he's been cleared to increase his, bas- his basketball activity. So TJ Warren will be coming back at somebody. Um, very, very low risk. Very, very low risk because TJ is an expiring contract this year. Same thing with Jeremy Lamb. I do really like Jeremy Lamb a lot, even though, listen, he hasn't been that great this season. He's averaging about seven points. I don't know what he's shooting. Let him get some rest. Uh, he's actually been terrible from the field, definitely less than 40%, not great. Um, But how much of this is him kind of being hung out to dry in favor of the younger players, because the same dude was just coming off four straight seasons of averaging double figures, shooting around 45% from the field each of those years. I think that the Knicks try to trade for one of these two. I'm going to say TJ Warren, because I think when healthy, TJ Warren is a superior player. However, uh, actually, do I want to say that? Actually, you know what? Yeah, I do want to say that. I think that the Knicks risk it for the biscuit a little bit. And they trade for an expiring player who has is high risk or low risk, high reward. If you trade for him, doesn't work out, you just let him go. You just let him go. Now the real the real difficulty here is going to make the money work. Because I don't want to trade RJ Barrett. I don't think the Knicks are entirely I don't think the Knicks are entirely out on R.J. Barrett. I think, I legitimately think the Knicks trade Kemba Walker around this trade deadline. I really do. I think that it's kind of just not working out for some reason. And this is entirely the antithesis of what I was trying to say, of what I was saying before. The Knicks need more offense, but... In order to get more offense, they're going to have to part with one of their best offensive players. And they're kind of just like stuck in neutral at that point. Because you're trading away TJ Warren for Kemba Walker. Or you're trading away Kemba Walker for TJ Warren. And TJ Warren is low risk, much like Kemba is low risk. But, you know, Kemba Walker is the superior offensive talent compared to those two. Now, I would, I'm would i just going to hit try this trade. It's not going to work. There's still too much money going out. Um, I wonder if the Nets kind of the the Nets. I wonder if the Knicks kind of just say fuck it, and they trade away Kemba, and they trade away Kevin Knox, and they just bring on Miles Turner, and they kind of justify it as well. Listen, and this trade works. By the way, they're kind of just like, hey, listen, we're a defensive-minded team. Why not make our defense as strong as possible, and just slow the game down? to as slow as we can. And we just hope and pray that at some point, uh, Julius and Evan Fournier, you just pray that these guys go back, or I'm more so talking about Randall in this regard, and you just pray that Randall starts to play like the all-star that we know he is. I mean, they've already benched Kemba once this year. Tom Thibodeau, to me, does not seem too emotionally invested in Kemba Walker. I think that's kind of a weird thing to say, but, I mean, you know the implications of Kemba. I'm going to play for the Knicks, at least from a social aspect. 
And I'm sure he came in and he thought that he was going to be a, a big piece of the offense because he's deserving of it. He's, in terms of skill, we were just talking about Kyrie Kemba Walker is the most skilled offensive player on that team, I feel like. Obviously, his shooting could be a little bit better, but it just it hasn't worked for them so far. And I wonder if like this is just the end of that experiment. Um, I apologize that the first two trades haven't been super wonky. I'm not someone who tries to create these super intricate three, four team deals. Um, I don't overthink it too much. And I really have no intention to, because then it just, it it's hard for me to remember. And I'm doing this live, like off the, off the cuff. So I apologize for anyone who was looking for me to say, oh, well, the Knicks trade Julius Randle and Evan Fournier for Miles Turner Lance Stevenson and Karis Levert. I apologize, but that's not the type of that's not the type of trade I would do because that's also just so fucking stupid. That's so dumb. Like I'm trying to make it rel- like relatively realistic, right? And then what's the last the last uh I think the last team was Dallas and then Charlotte. Uh, we'll do Dallas cuz I think I think this one I think we can get a little freaky with this one. So Miles Turner to Dallas. Who does Indiana take? I'm looking at this team. There's really no one. There's really nobody. They have a trade exception for Josh Richardson. Can't do anything with that. Um, I, well, listen. Obviously, Kristaps Porzingis is gone. If Miles Turner is traded, if Miles Turner is traded to Dallas, so we're just gonna pretend. That he's going to Indiana. Now what? Dallas needs to recoup some offense. I wonder. Hear me out. Kyrie. Why the fuck is it? Dude, why is it spawning so far off the page? What the fuck? So we're sending Kyrie to Dallas. We are going to send... Jalen Brunson, I love this fucking trade that I saw with um, Jalen Brunson and KP going to um, the Nets. I'm just not so sure if it'll work with the Pacers, right? So as I'm going to actually, let's see. Let's try to send KP to Brooklyn. So KP, Jalen Brunson to Brooklyn. Now, who goes to (coughs) Indiana? I think... I think Dwight Powell goes to Indiana. I'm not too sure why I think this because Dwight Powell is like close to 30 and it's, it's you know, the same reason why I didn't want to send a Russell Westbrook to um to Indiana because he's too old. Um but I do think that Dwight Powell can give aside from his talents on the basketball court, right? He's a very solid defender, like a, a quality role player who just who straight up impacts winning. He simply impacts winning. Or no, hold on. We're going to send we're actually going to send Kyrie to Indiana. Now, who are we sending back to Dallas? I think it's got to be Karis LeVert because the Dallas Mavericks are going to need another playmaker. Because they're trading away Kristaps Porzingis, who is a huge piece of their offense. They're also trading away 
Jalen Brunson, who is another huge piece of their offense, particularly with the bench unit. So they're losing a lot of offense in this deal. Send Miles Turner to Dallas. You send Karis LeVert to Dallas. Their defense gets significantly better right off the bat. And then Karis LeVert brings just enough to the offense to where, especially with an improved defense, they might not need as much firepower as they once thought that they did. Now, I still don't think this trade is going to work because the Pacers are over the luxury tax threshold. Uh, I need to cut $2 million from the Pacers' incoming trade value. Um, I'm pretty sure that I can just like... send fucking... Um, what if I send Frank Nilakina? Or no, hold on. What if I sent Moses Brown to the Pacers? Will that make it work? No. Oh, no. Okay. So, all right. I got it. I got it. I got it. Let's figure this out. So, I'm going to send O'Shea Brissett to uh, the fucking Dallas Mavericks. Because if I remember, O'Shea Brissett can shoot a little bit. He can definitely shoot a little bit. He's shooting 38% for his career, even though he's only been in the league for like two years. So that's something. Um, I could make it cheeky. Nah, we're going to send him to Brooklyn because fuck you, I'm biased, and the Nets really need some fucking three-point shooting. But let's see. Does this work? It does not. I still need to cut. All right. So hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. What if... Dwight Powell doesn't get traded to Indiana. That's got to work. Oh, this trade is absolutely atrocious for the Pacers, dude. They, I mean, they do get Kyrie Irving, and they will have Kyrie Irving for the entirety of the season. But man, Dallas gets Miles Turner and Karis LeVert, and the Nets get Chris Stapps, Porzingis, and Jalen Brunson. Hollinger's analysis. With this trade, you have decreased the Pacers' projected wins by 12. I don't care. I'm ruthless. I don't give a fuck. This is definitely one of those forced trade scenarios on 2K where the GM's like, dude, are you fucking crazy? And you're just like, yeah, yeah, send this trade through. Um, That was awesome. That was awesome. Now we're going to do one more trade. We have the Charlotte Hornets. I do feel obligated to touch on all the teams that are in this uh, in this fucking report okay now the hornets certainly no shortage of offense i'm actually just going to skedaddle on over to their basketball reference page just so i can get an actual an actual idea of what this team is working with this team the hornets very very good right they're coming off beating the milwaukee bucks i had a friend text me because sports gambling is now legal in new york i am engaging in all the degenerative behaviors that my friends are and my friend texts me because I think the spread for Bucks Hornets was nine and a half last night. He's like, yo, are the Hornets really going to beat the Bucks?" And this was when the Hornets were up by like 13. As we know, Milwaukee climbed back into the game because Giannis is a fucking beast. But my only response was, listen, bro, don't disrespect the Hornets. Don't let the spread fool you. This is a very, very talented team. And second in points a game, points per game, third in offensive rating. 
LaMelo Ball, Terry Rozier, Gordon Hayward have turned this team into an absolute freak show, including Kelly Oubre Jr., who I fucking love, right? I love Kelly Oubre Jr. And Miles Bridges. I forgot about Miles Bridges as well. This team has so much firepower that they might just literally they might just shoot themselves into the playoffs because they're currently eighth in the Eastern Conference. They're um they're eighth in the conference. They're up one game in the loss column to the Washington Wizards. So at this stage, they appear to be a play-in team. If I remember how the fucking the dog shit play-in rules are, it's like seven through ten, I believe. So at this pace, the Hornets are in the play-in because they're only like a game and they're only like a game up of the team behind them. So they need defense. So again, in this trade, Miles Turner. Miles Turner has been the centerpiece of like every fucking trade since uh, of like every fucking trade so far. I think if I'm if I'm trying to finesse this from the Hornets POV, I'll, I do everything in my power to hang on to um, uh, Lamelo Ball. Obviously, Gordon Hayward isn't going anywhere. I don't think Kelly Oubre is debatable. I would prefer to hold on to him, but if he is the starting piece in the Miles Turner deal, I think I think I go with it because you're losing your fourth best scorer, right? But you are gaining someone who is going to make your defense significantly more dominant, like worlds more dominant. And very much like with Dallas, that is a step back that you're willing to make also no more kelly uber granted he is he's not the shot creator that Lamelo is or that miles bridges has turned into believe it or not um, um almost all of his points come on threes right he's fucking leading the team in threes attempted per game almost eight shooting 37 percent from there so he's a huge catch and shoot threat he is a big piece of your offense, but this isn't necessarily a role that the Hornets don't have other guys to fill. Like, this is super crazy to look at, but Kelly Oubre is the ninth best shooter on this team at 37%. That's absolutely preposterous. Literally, the entire team can absorb what you're losing in him. And... Uh, I think just for the sake of the trade machine, you do that. Um, you're gonna have to trade somebody else. Uh, I have a feeling it's gonna be PJ Washington because the Pacers are kind of like, hey, look, I know we're trying to rebuild, but we're not just gonna let you lease us. Like that's not how. I know that general managers in the NBA are stupid, but like, come on, man. this is like a new level of dumb. So, P.J. Washington, another lights-out shooter, 43%, 43% from downtown, 10, 10 and a half points a game, young enough to where the Pacers can incorporate him into the next stage of their rebuild. He's 23. Kelly Oubre is 26, so he's a little bit older, but, I mean, you can make it work. And I, I have a feeling Kelly Oubre is, he's on a short deal as well, so if it doesn't work, he's gone by the end of next season. So this trade definitely works. Yeah, of course. And the Hornets are would be projected to be seven wins better. Now, the common theme here is that 
The Pacers do not get any better in any of these deals. They are the losing team in every single deal. And I think that they're okay with being the losers. Because ultimately, the team that they've constructed has failed. Objectively, it's been a failure, especially this year. Like, this team, like, you have Sabonis, Malcolm Brogdon, uh, what the fuck, Miles Turner, Karis LeVert, and you're just, like, doing dog shit. It's time, dude. It's time. Move on. Start with, start new with Chris Duarte and Isaiah Jackson. Maybe you get Kyrie Irving. That's awesome. You don't have to, you don't have to extend him, but, like, you still get Kyrie Irving for half the season if that were to if that were to manifest but yeah the hornets are going to be losers are at the trade deadline at least in the at least in the short term like i don't think anyone is going to doubt that but then again i don't think we'll be as critical of them if we know that like they're doing these moves out of necessity almost and i think that with that i'm going to close ahead i'm going to go ahead and close it out for this week as always, thank you guys so much for tuning in. Um, wow, I totally just like that. Let's try that again. As always, thank you guys so much for tuning in. Uh, everything I'm associated with is in the description box below. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. Follow me on social media, all that. Uh, if you're listening on iTunes, leave a like, leave a rating, leave a review. Do something. Tell a friend about it. Tell a friend if you liked the show. Tell a friend if you didn't because no press is, or all press is good press. I'm so fucking gassed and I've only been talking for an hour. I'm a literal weakling. Anyway, it was a blast as always. Thank you guys, and I will catch y'all in the next one.